0: Hello, all my beautiful, strange, and unusual nerds. Let's get started. Welcome to episode 23 of The Strange and Unusual with Joe. I am Joey Valentine, if you, if you are new here. Today is the start of a new series on the podcast. It is called Eerie Unsolved Mysteries from Around the World. It is where we will be explaining and exploring some of the weirdest and creepiest unsolved mysteries from around the world. Today is the first episode of the series called 5 of Japan's Eeriest Slash Creepiest Unsolved Mysteries. So buckle up and get ready for some weird content. Alrighty, but before we get into the episode, there are some few announcements that I have to mention. Beginning this episode, there will be a video option with all our podcasts. So you get to see me present the information with a PowerPoint, pictures and visuals, etc. So I, I hope you're enjoying it because I love it too. Also remember to follow all the, show, all the social media and follow the podcast to be rem- reminded about when we post new episodes and other, and other content it will be linked in the in the blog post that goes with the episode and also in the description of the episode as well i will also be posting this on youtube so that will be that link will also be in the, in the description as well so there are a few trigger warnings that I have to mention before we move on to the episode, um, as you see here in the video. But if, if you're just listening on the audio, some of those trigger warnings include children getting murdered, a dead body being found in a cramped area, etc. If you can't handle any of that, I completely understand it, And I will see you for another episode. All right, let's jump into the first mystery with mystery number one, the Okiku doll. And a, a disclaimer: I may butcher some of these names because they're hard to pronounce. Um, so I will try my best, but I I apologize in advance if I butcher like all of these names. <laughs> okay. So the Okiku doll case. The doll is located in Hokkaido, yeah, in Hokkaido, Japan, specifically inside the Menenji Temple in Iwamizawa, Iwamizawa, yeah. I'm, I'm pretty sure that's how you say that. Again, I apologize if I butcher these names. The story began in 1918. A young man named Ikishi Suzaki, Suzaki was visiting Soparo, Japan and saw a doll and knew he immediately was perfect for his two-year-old sister, Okiku. It immediately became Okiku's constant companion. The doll was never out of sight of the little girl. If it wasn't in her possession, it was always nearby. The little girl loved the doll so much that she named it after herself. I mean, I've had those kind—I've t- had those connections with dolls before, so I get it. The doll was just under 16 inches tall and dressed a tra- in a traditional Japanese gown, a kimono, with shoulder-length hair. The case slash story, part two. Tragedy struck in the family, unfortunately, though, when in 1919, Okiku became ill and passed away from a high fever at the age of three. The original plan for the doll was for it to be buried with Okiku, but unfortunately that wasn't possible. Instead, they used the doll to make a small altar in Okiku's family's home in in remembrance of her. After, the the family noticed a stronger connection between their, their beloved Okiku and the doll than ever before. At one point, they even noticed something bone chilling about the doll. The doll's hair started growing as time passed eventually the hair the, the hair grew in uh, to like 10 inches in length i think i heard it's insane the case story part three this led the family to believe that Okiku's spirit was actually in the doll after the doll after the doll stayed in the family's house for about 20 years if you uh, look at the picture um if you look at the picture, you'll see that um, the the shrine. I don't have a, a a wider picture of the shrine, but that's that's how much I can I that's how far I can find, and that's what the doll looks like with the grown out hair. After the doll stayed in the family's house for about twenty years, in 1938 the family moved moved from. Hokito, but decided to leave the doll in the Menunji the Temple where it remains to this day. No one is allowed to photograph the doll, unfortunately, when, when they visit the temple, but they can, they can still like watch it and look at it. Apparently, now because of a dream that a priest of the temple had, all the monks occasionally trim the doll's hair to its original shoulder length. It is also said in a scientific investigation that the doll's hair is like that of a human child. A human child on the. So creepy. So creepy. All right, the next, here's the next mystery. Mystery part, mystery number two. The monster with 21 faces. The Glyco slash Morinaga, yeah, Morinaga mystery slash case. The Izaki Glico Company the izaki glico company is known for its beloved pokey snacks as seen here i love them i've had them before as seen in the picture on the left, like I said, on March 18th, 1984, though, they were seen in a very different light because of something tragic. According to AllThat'sInteresting.com, that night, two masked men broke into the home of Glyco President Katsushika, yeah, Katsush, Katsuhisa... Izaki around nine p.m. They tied they tied up Izaki's wife and daughter and dragged Izaki naked from his bathtub. They threw the candy executive into the back of a car and sped off into the night. After after this this happened, after the kidnapping, afterwards, the shock of Afterwards, to the shock of many people in Japan, the kidnappers then demanded 1 billion yen and 220 pounds of golden bullion. I'm not sure what bullion is, but it must be money. According to allthatsinteresting.com, though Izaki managed to escape before the company paid his ransom, it soon became apparent that his torment had just begun. The anarchy that came afterwards... Before long, six cars—literally six cars—were found on fire in the Glyco uh, in the Glyco parking lot. Then someone sent the, the company a container of hydrochloric acid. Then the tormentors sent send it. So I'm threatening letters, and they they were printed in the newspaper very quickly. One of the letters said things like, "To the police, fools, are you stupid?" What the hell are you doing with all that manpower? After they continued giving, after they continued giving clues throughout, like the color of the car, etc. The, the ended They ended the letter with, "Should we kidnap the head of the pre- prefectural, yeah, prefectural police too?" Then their threats got even worse. In mid-May, the monster with 21 faces claimed that they laced a ton of glyco candy with cyanide and put them back on the shelves. How the monster with 21 faces laced that candy and put them back. Following that letter, the country of Japan was in total panic, and understandably so. I would be too. The Monster with 21 Faces didn't specify which candy they laced the cyanide with, so Japan recalled all of Glyco's candy. As a result, the Glyco company saw big decreases in their sales, but oddly enough, police never found any evidence of cyanide in the candy like the Monster with 21 Faces claimed. Then the monster with 21 faces continues to torment Japan with different letters. Then, since they then since they became bored with, with the Glyco company, the, the monster with 21 faces moves on to another company. The more the, the more Naga side of the story. If you're wondering when they would come in, here's when they come in. Their side of the story started in September of 1984 when the Monster of 21 Faces demanded money from the Morinaga Company. When Morinaga refused to comply, the Monster with 21 Faces sent another chilling letter. According to allthatsinteresting.com, we've added some special flavor. The group said in an October letter, "The flavor of potassium cyanide is a little bitter." They explained that they had that they had left 20 boxes in stores from Hakata to Tokyo filled with cyanide-laced candies. But don't worry, they they added, they left a note on the boxes. Sure enough, police found boxes of poisoned candy with a sticker affixed to them that read, "Danger: contains poison." You'll die if you eat this. The mystery man with 21 faces. The enduring mystery that followed. For months afterwards, police did everything they could to find the monster with 21 faces. Threats continued to go to to other companies, so police examined hours of footage and even released audio of a woman demanding money on behalf of the monster with 21 faces, hoping someone would identify them, but no one did. They had a couple of clues from surveillance footage, like the picture that you see on the slide of different people putting the candy back on the shelf, but no one could identify them specifically. What happened afterwards? This case was too much for the police because they kept getting fail after fail. It was especially too much for the head of the police, Soji Yamamoto. He died after pouring kerosene on himself and setting himself on fire. Literally, the dude set himself on fire. The monster with 21 faces reacted to this in a couple of ways. They said in a letter, how stupid of him, but they also seemed mollified they they said this according to all that's we did we decided to give our condolence the group said they we decided to forget about torturing food making companies if anyone blackmails any of the food making companies it's not us but someone copying us signing off they added yeah signing off they added we are bad guys that that means we've got more to more to do other than bullying companies it's fun to lead a bad man's life monster with 21 faces the aftermath after that the monster with 21 faces was never heard from again even though police investigated a ton of different people and clues, no one has been able to identify them. Even if they took off their mask now and revealed themselves, police can't charge them. This, is, this has be- become one of the greatest unsolved mysteries in the 20th century. Mystery number three, the dead body in a septic tank. Here's, the, here's one of the trigger warnings. beginning japan's sewage system back in the day wasn't as great and tech-based like you see today in some of japan's bathrooms at the time it was just a septic tank which stored human waste for later transportation the unnerving finding on september 28th 1989 a female teacher in miyakoji Village Fuku, yeah, Fukushima found more than just a typical human waste in the, just a typical human waste in the septic tank in a single room dormitory. She found a human body. The according to the SmartLocal.com, the body belonged to a topless man. He was found in a fetal position, hugging his own clothes with his face facing the toilet hole. A shoe was placed beside his head while his other shoe was found at a faraway riverbank. Because of how small the openings of the septic tank were, the police had difficulty retrieving the body to the point where they had to cut the the septic tank open in order to do so the um the identity of the body the victim was later identified as the 26 year old neo neo yeah neoyuki Kano. unfortunately i could not find a picture of him i could o- i only have his name and wh- his age and how he go- how he went missing and stuff he was reported missing on february 24th 4 days before they reportedly found his body it was later reported that he died on february 26th the, the conclusion of the case. The case was dismissed as a case of peeping. The police claimed that the guy entered the tank to peep on women and he died of hypothermia. However, police police who knew the guy claimed that wasn't possible at all. There are so many clues, though, leading to this case being foul foul play. His body was entered head first. He wouldn't want to do that. People would normally enter, like, put their feet in first if they would do something like that, like if it was a slide or something. Also, it's a small tank, 125 centimeters to 47 centimeters to be exact, so there's no way he would have been able to do that himself. He also found, they also found a shoe, like, way far away from the scene, so. This is like all of these clues add up to this case being foul play, but unfortunately, this case hasn't been solved, so we will never know. It's so sad. We're we're left with only a few questions. How how was he able to get into that tank in the first place? Since it's clearly not him that did it, who put him in the tank to begin with? Like I said, what was their motive behind this? Although there is a ton of questions, unfortunately, like I said, there may not ever be answers. All right, mystery number four, the second to last mystery, the vending machine murders. The cause. In the, in 1985, the Otsuka Pharmaceutical Company was experiencing a decline in sales of its health tonic drink known as Aronium C. This led them to launch a, a campaign. This campaign was was when you buy a drink you would also get the uranium drink for free many of these bottles would be left there left there in the slot or on top of the vending machines it was typical in japanese culture at the time to leave unwanted drinks for someone else to enjoy this would be the perfect conditions that would lead to one of the most sadistic crimes in history the poisoning. The first victim, 45-year-old, he was he, he a 45-year-old truck driver from Fukuyama, Hiroshima. On, on April 30th, 1985, he was purchasing a drink from a vending machine in the city when he spotted a bottle of uranium-C on top, and he took it. He would soon regret it because he fell ill. He was showing signs of severe poisoning and internal chemical burns, I mean, ow. The medical staff that took him in couldn't help him other than identify what poison was killing him. The tests showed that it was paraquat, a chemical often used against weeds and banned in over 30 countries due to its adverse effects. This man died on May 30th, 1985. So, literally a month after he drank the bottle. It's wow. The police investigation of the case led nowhere and the case went cold, even more poisonings. After the first victim, the murders keep happening more and more. A 52-year-old man in Osaka drank a free beverage from a vending machine on September 11th and died three days later. The same thing happened to a, 23, a 22-year-old college student excuse me, in, in May. By the end of November, there were so many murders that was that it was hard to count. The investigation. The police worked hard on this case, but it was unfortunately unsolvable. There were no witnesses, no cameras, and it was the it was the 80s, so they didn't have any DNA testing yet either. If they had it, it was very minimal. There was no clear motive for the murders either. They were scattered, and none of the victims were connected to each other at all. The poli- the only connection be- between the cases—is that all but the very last victim were male. There is no evidence, not a single lead, the police could catch. So this whole case went cold. The aftermath 20 years ago, because of this case, the statute of limitations was passed. So. I'm glad at least, even though the um, the victims weren't able to get justice, at least they did something about it. And here's the last mystery, I don't know why it's shrunk like this, but mystery number five, the massacre of the Miwazama family in Setagaya. The Miwazama family, they lived in a suburb in Tokyo called Setagaya which is about half an hour, which is about half an hour away from the city. Seregea is home to the Gorokuji Temple, which is known for its collection of yet lucky cat figurines. The, in the Miyazawa family, there was 44-year-old Miyoko yeah, mi, yeah, Mikio, Mikio Miyazawa. Sorry, I'm just trying to pronounce their name right. His 41-year-old wife Yasuko, yeah, Yasuko, and their children, eight-year-old daughter Nina, and six-year-old son Ray. Mikiko, Mikiko worked for in, worked for in Interbrand, a London-based consulting firm. Yes, and Yasuko, the wife, was a teacher. The tragedy on December thirtieth, two thousand, the whole Miyazakwa family was murdered. A man climbed a tree outside of their house and entered the second floor of their home. He strangled six-year-old Ray to death and murdered his father with a knife. The mother and daughter were subsequently killed also with that knife. The killer afterwards stayed in the Miwazawa residence for two to ten hours. He used a computer, ate their food and drinks, and and even treated his own wounds. He only left when Yasuko's mother arrived. The suspect in the house, the suspect left behind sneakers, Sleizanger brand, yeah, Sleizanger brand uh, the, with Korean sizing, likely purchased in Korea, a dark green hip bag, a black handkerchief, a hat, a scarf, a down jacket, a black winter, black winter gloves, and the killer left many traces of his DNA, so the police were able to uncover the fact that the male, the killer is a mammal around his 170, 170 centimeters tall, as you can see in the picture. He is likely of mixed descent from Asia and Europe, with one with a one in four chance of being Korean. Um, that is all that. Unfortunately, that is all we know about that case. So thank you guys so much for listening and watching the 23rd episode. I hope you all liked it. Remember to give the podcast a follow and like it. I'll talk to everyone next time. I'll probably do a bonus episode this week, so I'll talk to everyone then. This is Joey, signing out.